you so much, team. That was absolutely amazing. Um, beautiful, beautiful time of worship. I'm sure we can all agree. Um, yeah, let's actually give them a, another clap. I think they deserve that. Thank you, guys. Um, welcome to church. How are we feeling today? All right? I'm feeling a bit all over the place, to be honest. Um, I'm talking about end times, so, you know, that's super fun, and I've had a great week wrestling <laughs> with some of this stuff I'm going to attempt to make some sense of today, and, you know, just to add to the whole um, craziness, my printer ran out of paper, so I'm preaching off orange paper today. Um, my kids kept stealing the paper from the printer, as they do, you know, making poo planets and weird things, but anyway, I have orange paper that's fine. We can deal with that. All right. So Jesus and the end times. That's what we're doing. You ready? I'm not. But anyway, we'll be fine. We'll be good. All right. Um, if you haven't been here for the last month, 14 weeks, I don't know, a long time, we have been going through, journeying through the book of Mark, essentially. Um, and we've spent quite a considerable amount of time on Mark, which is awesome because it's really good to go in depth into a book and really navigate it. But getting to this, <laughs> this chapter, I had, you know, one message for this whole chapter and I feel like we could spend 14 weeks just on this, honestly. Uh, but, you know, we'll do what we can. My head was a bit all over the place trying to figure out how to order all of this. Um, so I'm going to bring what I have, and hopefully God will make some sense of it. Is that all right? <laughs> cool. All right. So we're looking at Mark 13, and in the Bible, it, in most Bibles, it has the title, actually I'll have this up here so I don't run out of time. Um, in most Bibles, it's Jesus, the destruction of the temple, and end times. So we're in some pretty heavy territory. Um, our passage today takes us to Jerusalem. We're in the holy city of Israel. There's the hustle and bustle of thousands of people getting prepared for Passover. But in the midst of preparing for a wonderful time of celebration, it was one of the most incredible Jewish festivals, remembering Israel's deliverance from slavery and death at the hands of the Egyptian empire, there was incredible tension in the air. As we heard from Dave last week, uh, Jesus spent some time in the temple courts after his arrival in Jerusalem. He had a look around, surveying what was going on. He left, went to Bethany after some reflection and processing, came back and flipped the tables. Just had a moment of this almost righteous anger of just going, this is not right. So things are tense. And scholars describe Jesus surveying as, uh, of the temple, looking around, kind of akin to a king going into his kingdom, into his courts, having a look and seeing how the kingdom is running. And this is quite significant because in this moment, Jesus internalizes the authority to do this. He's the one that gets to measure the health and the well-being and the sanctity of the temple. He internalizes that himself. And you can kind of see why his then 
judgment on the temple is the thing that leads to his arrest. It's that. That's the turning point. Now, he describes this process of the health and the well-being of the temple in the metaphor of the fig tree. We'll have a little bit of a look at that later. Uh, but following this, a series of really significant and important teachings happen uh, in chapter 12. So Jesus uh, flips the tables, he's in the temple, he's doing some teaching, there's lots of crowds there. He talks about the parable of the vineyard where the owner of the land sends messenger after messenger and then finally his own son, all of them rejected, right? There's a bit of foreshadowing going on there of Jesus' own death and the rejection of the message of God. And then in this passage in, in chapter 12, we have some other really significant things that happen. We've got Jesus' greatest commandment to love. That's there, right there. Love God, love others. This is more important than all the sacrifices and burnt offerings in the temple. And then we get to Mark 13. We'll read this soon. But most scholars agree that Mark 13 contains some of the most interesting and problematic material in all of Mark's gospel. There are so many references to Old Testament scriptures, to Jewish prophetic tradition, to apocalyptic overtones. We also have some different themes that are being dealt with here. Most of the chapter deals with Jesus foreshadowing the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So most of it deals with that. Many people have kind of gotten this a little bit confused. They read all of chapter 13 and think that all of it has to do with end times, that there are specific signs that will point to when the end of the world or Jesus' second coming. But we've got to be careful how we deal with this because part of it deals with that but most of it deals with the immediate destruction of the temple. We'll look at the structure about, of that in a second. So there's certainly this air of the end, but a lot of it is to do with the end of the temple era. However, as I said, there are parts of it that do deal with something a bit different. Jesus does switch from talking about the immediate future to then discussing things in the more distant future. And it follows this kind of back and forth structure. Now, before we get into properly reading this passage, it is actually helpful to get a bit of an insight into what was happening in Jerusalem in 30 AD when Jesus was making these predictions. But then also there's another layer of context that we have to consider. Yes, Mark is recording Jesus words or traditions associated with Jesus in this particular passage. And he's ordered it according to the tradition associated with Jesus, right? 30 AD, that's when that's happening. But we have to remember that Mark is writing this 40 years later. He's writing this in around 68 to 70 AD. And the context there is also really significant. Now I'm gonna put my ancient history teacher hat on. <laughs> And we're actually going to learn some ancient history, okay? Um, any history buffs here? A few? Yeah, good. All right. I have a few fans. That's good. All right. So we're going to travel back to Jerusalem in 30 AD. 
Israel is under the control of the Roman Empire. It's a Roman province. So that means the empire has invaded, it's taken over. It has put in place a Roman prefect. That person is responsible for all of Rome's, uh, all of the province's runnings. The um, financial system, all of that. It even has, this prefect even has the ability to appoint the high priest of the Jewish temple. That's the role of this Roman prefect. So already, we've got some tense things going on here. Now, as we know, this prefect was Pontius Pilate. That's the dude. The emperor at the time is Tiberius. He's the second emperor of Rome after Rome turns into an empire after being a republic. So he comes in after Augustus. And he's a bit of a reluctant emperor, but wants everything to be just ordered as it was, following the footsteps of his adoptive father, Augustus. Didn't want conflict, but was very strict with the provinces to ensure that no, no kind of revolutionary revolts broke out. So we've got this situation. Jerusalem's controlled by Rome. Tiberius, Pontius Pilate is sort of overseeing all of this stuff. And these two people and many others within Rome were deeply anti-Semitic. They had a deep hatred of Jewish people in particular. And this made for a pretty miserable existence for the Jews. In essence, you have a people fighting with everything they have to hold on to their heritage and their identity, while this is kind of continuously being pushed away from them. And then within this situation, we've got the temple, that's the centre of Judaism, and a really, really significant part of their heritage, of their identity, of their understanding of how God interacts and engages with them. And out of this, we've got three groups of sort of Jewish religious leaders that emerge. We've got the Sadducees. So these were the Jewish elite. And they actually most often sided with the Romans. They thought it was a good idea to get on their side. And they would kind of exchange influence over the Jewish community for riches and wealth and positions of power. So they were very much hated in that kind of context among their own people. And then you had the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders, deeply committed to following the laws of Moses, but also not free from corruption. And again, we see that in Mark's gospel as well, with Jesus constantly criticising the teachers of the law for the injustices that they were committing. Um, Dave outlined to us last week some of the things that they were doing. Uh, price gouging, some of the only sacrificial animals that the poor could afford, um, and just generally, in some ways, not doing things in line with what they should have been doing. And then lastly, there were the zealots. And this was a group of Jewish people who believed that the answer to their oppression was violence and force. It was to declare war on Rome, and it was to overthrow the Romans with military-style action. So you've got this kind of religious leader situation going on with all of these moving parts, a lot of tension in the air. And it's within this context, with these corrupt leaders, with ones who are price gouging and, and really taking advantage 
of the poor and the vulnerable within the temple itself, as well as these zealots who are getting increasingly frustrated with Rome just pressuring them, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple in this context. No stone will be left unturned, everyone thrown down. And it didn't matter which group you were a part of, this was terrifying. Now we fast forward about 40 years. Mark's writing all of this down. And scholars think that he compiled this about 68 to 70. And if you thought things were tense in 30 AD, this is a whole nother level. So news of Jesus' life, his miracles, ministry, his death and resurrection had spread around the empire through his followers such as Peter and Paul, establishing churches, and the emperor now was Nero. If you know anything about ancient Rome, Nero was just a pretty deranged person, to say the least. He had a hatred of Jews as well, and particularly of the new Christian sect that was growing, And there's a famous story about a huge fire that destroyed a significant portion of Rome that broke out and Nero blamed the Christians for that fire. He used them as targets in the gladiatorial games and there are stories of how he used them as human torches to line the streets of Rome. It's pretty intense. Now things are starting to heat up literally, with the fire, and also <laughs> just culturally as well. Um, in Judea, oh, it's probably worth noting, actually, that Peter and Paul were both executed under Nero's regime. Both of them were. They were martyred under Nero's regime. And then things start to, t- to kind of increase in tension even after that. Uh, the zealots are becoming increasingly fed up. Uh, this kind of came to a head when the new prefect at that particular time raided the temple treasury and used the money to fund the cult of the emperor in Judea. They also appointed a Roman as the high priest in the temple just to mess with the Jews. So you can understand how messed up that is. And then in Rome itself, Nero was hated even by his own people. The Senate eventually forced him to commit suicide and then his military general, Vespasian, and his son, Titus, end up taking over. Then everything explodes. The zealots declare war on Rome, desperate to reclaim their city and the temple. Rome, as you would expect, respond with incredible force. And just as Jesus predicted, within a generation, 40 years later, the temple is destroyed completely. And Mark is writing his gospel as he watches all of this unfold. Just think about that for a second. He's writing down these words of Jesus 40 years earlier and he's watching all of this unfold before his very eyes. All right. So now we're going to read chapter 13 with that kind of context in mind. And I'm going to show you a little bit of how the structure of Mark 13 works. Like I said, it kind of flips between two contexts. The first we call the A material and the second we call the B material. And I think it will be up on the screen in a sec. 
no, it's not up. We got another one, guys? Um, yeah, that's it. Okay. So we've got Mark 13, verse 1 to 23. So Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. The disciples ask when this will happen, what to look out for, what signs to look out for, and Jesus sets out to answer their questions. He explains, first of all, what not to get distracted by, and then what actually to look out for. And as we read it, look out for the fact that he says, the sign is the abomination of the desolation, which most scholars think is actually that appointment of that high priest, the Roman, right? That is the ultimate kind of desecration of the temple. That's the sign. Uh, There's also a message of encouragement there that God will help his followers bear in the suffering that will ensue. Then it switches to the B material. And Jesus talks about something called the parousia, or the second coming. And all of a sudden we get this kind of cosmological, prophetic language where we talk about the coming of the king at the end of all things. Bit of a weird kind of thing just thrown in there. And then, weirdly enough, it just flips back to the A material. So then again, in Mark 28 to 31, Jesus switches back to talking about the temple again. And he talks specifically about the metaphor of the fig tree. Now, this is a common theme among the chapters preceding as well, which is how we know this is related to the temple. So this is a bookend to the previous mention in chapter 11. Jesus curses the fig tree because it hasn't grown any fruit. And then Jesus references the time frame in which the temple will be destroyed, using the fig tree as the sign of the fruitlessness, and he says it's within a generation. And that actually happens. Generation is considered 40 years. And then we flip back to the B material, where at the very end of this chapter, Jesus switches again to the second coming, another reference as to the timing, but unlike the destruction of the temple, only the Father knows when the second coming will occur. All right, so that hopefully gives us a bit of grounding, a bit of context, a bit of structure. As we read through this, I want to see if you can just pick up on some of those things. All right, okay, let's go. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all of these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. Keep in mind he's talking about the temple, the destruction of the temple. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local officials and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. 
It's talking about the Gentiles here. It must be preached to the Gentiles, which again within 40 years is something that has happened. Whether you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say what is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong. So that's what they think is that high priest. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So it's like this warning. Once that guy rocks up in the temple, the followers of Jesus are to flee. Get out of there. Because there's only destruction to follow. Let no one go onto the housetop, go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one go into the field, uh, go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. So this is the reference to God being able to help his followers. The elect just means all the people who have followed Jesus. He's helping them bear with this suffering. And at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. That's the description of the temple part. Now we flip over to the B material. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. That's our weird kind of second coming stuff. Now we flip back to the other material about the... Um, temple. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And then back to the second coming language. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert, you do not, you do not, know, you do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away, he leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells that one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he, if he suddenly comes, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. 
There we go. It's so weird and really confusing. But anyway, we'll try and make some sense of it now. But hopefully some of that context and understanding the different parts helped you kind of follow along with that a little bit easier. Now, I would love to take the time to comb through this with a full-on exegesis, um, part by part, symbol by symbol, all of that. But we just don't have the time, right? But I would encourage you to do that at some point. And if you are interested, come and talk to me after and I'll give you a couple of recommendations of commentaries. That would be really good. Um, what we're going to do instead, for the sake of time and also, I think, just to give us some kind of meaning or insight out of this passage, is have a look at three of the major themes that we see kind of emerging from this. They're three key symbols that emerge from actually the whole passage from chapter 11 through to this. And we're going to try and draw some insights of what they might mean. Now, I'm, no, I'm not an expert on this, okay? So let's just see where we go. Um, and I hope something sits with you. And if it does, it'll be great for you to just spend some time thinking about that. Yeah? All right, here we go. So, we're going to talk about the temple. That's the first one, and a big one. So, the majority of this passage, as we've heard, deals with the temple, and more specifically, the destruction of the temple. As we also know, the temple is this social, cultural, and religious center of Israel. All of Jewish, Jewish life completely revolved around the temple precinct. And this was predominantly because the temple was believed to house the very presence of God. It was the place where heaven and earth interacted, where humans could engage with God through rituals of sacrifice, prayer, and worship. But this wasn't always the case. If we remember back to the beginning of Genesis, what we find is that the whole of creation originally was God's temple, the entire thing. God created the world as his temple, as a place where people could freely engage with him, could worship and pray with him, where God walked alongside Adam and Eve completely freely with just such intimacy. That's the picture that we get. And then something happened. Something broke. And then... God's presence becomes restricted to its particular building. And that's the story we get in the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. To make access to the presence of God becomes reliant on these rituals. Now, something's shifting in Jesus' final days on earth. As he walks through the temple courts, observing the practices, he seems to notice something, that the presence and reconciling power of God was no longer limited to the temple. In fact, it was most fully present within himself. Imagine what that must have been like for him to have that realisation, walking through the temple knowing that that presence, that power is in him. And in chapter 12, Jesus refers to himself as the cornerstone of the temple. And then as he goes and overturns the tables, predicts, the temple's destruction to the point that no stone is left unturned, what Mark seems to be saying 
is that Jesus was bringing an end to the validity of the temple and its ritual as a means of reconciliation and meeting between God and humanity. Instead, the message we get is that Jesus becomes that place of reconciliation and the meeting place between God and humanity. That's huge. That's massive. Now, one of the things that really got me when I was trying to work through this in my own head, it's actually hard to sit in the tension of this because in reality, we can't deny the fact that Mark presents Jesus' warning of the destruction of the, destruction of the temple as a judgment on Israel. That makes me really uncomfortable, I have to be honest. But that's, we can't deny that. That's kind of there. And it's ultimately because of their rejection of Jesus and the message that Jesus brought. Now, this situation raises a lot of questions, and it should, because we need to, as modern readers, wrestle with the text. Um, some of the things I was thinking is, was it God that allowed the temple to be destroyed? Did God will that? And if so, like all the surrounding circumstances of that, the Romans coming in, the like almost millions of people murdered, how does that work? And I think the thing that got me is, were the people of Israel to be so harshly blamed for not recognising God in Jesus when there are so many stories of even his closest companions just misunderstanding who he is? I don't have the answers. Um, I'll keep trying to wrestle with that. But even though these overtones of judgment are there, we cannot fall into the trap of separating them from the rest of what we find in the book of Mark and the surrounding stories. In the pages of Mark, we find a God whose presence is embodied by Jesus, someone deeply committed to the subversive action of love and self-sacrifice, of liberating the oppressed, of bringing dignity and hope to the marginalised. So I think an insight we can draw from this is that all of the attempts, however it happened, all of the attempts of the Romans to destroy the story and the memory of a God who liberated his people from the constraints and the power of an enslaving empire utterly failed. It didn't work. The temple was destroyed, yes, but God was not. And then we have this Jesus, who the very same God who rescued the Israelites from Egypt, the presence of that God was embodied within Jesus. That was the spirit of a God that he brought into the world, and Rome tried to kill him too, tried to destroy that liberative, rescuing presence of God, to destroy that story, to say the empire would win once and for all. And it didn't. It didn't. Jesus conquered death, and here we are, 2,000 and something years later, talking about this. It didn't work. 
think it's important for us to use this as an opportunity to reflect on what this might mean for us as a church and as a community. Now, I believe God is committed to moving forward in the timeline of human history to bring about more liberation and more flourishing. But you don't have to be a historian to know that the church has very often gotten in the way of that. In my opinion, I think the downfall of the church has often been their obsession with their buildings, with their rituals, and even sometimes their theology. And there have been many churches who have become obsessed with identifiers and boundary maintenance. Who's in? Who's out? Dangerously acting as spiritual gatekeepers and restricting God to fit into their own purposes. And I think the warning of this passage is that God will not be restricted. God will not be limited. And it's important to us to reflect on whether we as a community are aligning ourselves with what God is doing in the world, not what we think God should be doing. Are we trying to be spiritual gatekeepers or are we prepared to fully embrace the boundary-breaking presence we find in Jesus. I think that's something that would be important for us to think about. Now, I was going to talk about the fig tree, but I'm running out of time. So, again, for the second time in a row, the fig tree gets the cut. Um, <laughs> I would... <laughs> If you want to know about it, I'll tell you about it later. But I do want to talk about the end time stuff because that's kind of what we sort of need to address as well. Um, yeah, just as a really brief fig tree, it's meant to represent prosperity, security, fruitfulness. Jesus criticizes the fig tree. It looks really pretty. It has lots of leaves. Externally, it's beautiful. Essentially, it's useless. It's not doing what it's meant to do. And that's the criticism here. Anyway, moving on. Son of man. Okay. So in the midst of the predictions of the destruction and the descriptions of suffering, we get this kind of brief section, this brief kind of almost forced into the break of this section where Mark records a curious description of the return of the Son of Man. And this is kind of understood by most scholars to be referring to a second coming where Jesus returns to restore the earth for good. Now, as much as this is a break in the narrative, it actually really fits uh, with everything else. Because the temple has been judged for its fruitlessness. We've seen the brokenness of creation. We've seen the deviation of creation from what it's meant to be, and the temple for that matter, the place where God is fully present without any barrier to a place of injustice, and suffering, sometimes at the hands of God's people. But in the, in the tension of the impending destruction and everything Israel held as significant, Jesus brings this weird, cosmological, prophetic message of hope. This is not the end. And Mark shows us that Jesus interprets his own death and resurrection 
as the means for bringing heaven and earth back together. To restore creation as it was always meant to be. And this is a concept that theologians now refer to as new creation. In other words, when Jesus returns, the idea is that heaven comes to earth. They are places that are completely enmeshed together. Heaven is not some far-off place in the clouds. There is kind of an overlapping that happens. And it's clear from just looking around at our own lives and what's going on in the world at the moment that this isn't fully here yet. Heaven is not fully here. The kingdom is not fully here. There is still so much suffering, so much injustice. And we're in a bit of this now and not yet situation. Jesus' death and resurrection shows us what is possible and ushers in this new era. And we also get to be a temple that houses the Spirit of God and partner with God to bring new creation wherever we go. And that is our mission as followers of Jesus, to be fruitful for the kingdom and bring new creation wherever we are. Again, this brings a lot of questions. We don't know about the second coming, all of that kind of messes with my head a little bit. But I look at the world and I look at the suffering and I look at things that people are going through and the hope of new creation, of things being restored, the promise of no more tears, no more pain. There is something just so amazing about that. And any kind of fear or confusion that I might have is kind of washed away with that image. And that's what I hold on to. What does it look like to be inaugurators of the new creation? I was thinking about what this looks like in my own life. Because we sometimes think this, this is on a massive scale. And in some cases it is. But if we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, it's actually just one person at a time, one interaction at a time, one subversive push against the powers and the systems of oppression at a time. Um, for me, I just finished up with my year 12 class at Innerborough, where I teach, and I teach them ancient history. Um, and I received some letters at the end of the term that actually just were so moving. I, I'm just a teacher, you know, I just rock up and do my thing. But I try and do it in a way where I treat these kids like human beings and try and do it in a way where I kind of give them a sense of, you know, care and love for who they are and try and mirror Jesus as much as I can. And I got these beautiful messages that probably meant more to me than anything else. And kid after kid just wrote to me that the classroom became, oh, I'm getting emotional, a place of escape, a safe haven for them. And I think that's new creation. That's, I don't know, me just trying my best to mirror God in that situation. And in their lives, they're not Christians, in their lives, with all of the judgment that they face, the criticisms, all of the stuff that happens on social media, 
trying to figure out who they are. They've got parents going through divorces. They've got all this stuff going on. They're just kids in this world trying to figure it out. It's harder than it's ever been. If I can provide some kind of safe haven that is a slice of heaven, that new creation, I think that's what it's meant to be. Just a place of love and care, not of judgment, not of, you know, calling out sin or unholiness or whatever. It's just, this is a a place of heaven where you can rest, where you can be yourself. And people have provided that to me. Last story, I promise. Um, My mum is in palliative care. And so this whole, you know, death thing, it's like on my doorstep as well. And I, I don't know what it kind of looks like for her. It's just that it is the end at some point soon. Um... And I feel that greatly because she's in New Zealand and I'm here. And sometimes I need, I feel sucked into the destruction narrative. And I feel like everything around me is being destroyed. There was a couple of weeks ago when I was just feeling like that, just being swallowed up by life. Um, Michael had COVID, Teddy had strep. I had the HSC trials and it was just crazy and I reached out to some of my spiritual mothers, Bernie and Donna and they just loved me and just brought food around and fed my family. And I I said to Michael, I just said, whenever I have doubts about God and whenever I have doubts about heaven or how it's all going to work out or what it's meant to look like. It's those moments that ground me in saying that there's something real about this. I think that's what new creation looks like. And I think it's something that we just need to keep doing. And no matter what tries to stop that, I think we have the hope that Jesus will show up for us and then we can show up for others. All right, that's all I have time for. Um, oh, okay, we're good. Um, I'm going to get the band up. And then I have a couple of questions just to reflect on as this song plays. I want you to think about whether there's an attitude or assumption that God might be challenging you to break. God is boundary breaking. We've seen that in these stories. Ask God to reveal to you where in your own thinking you can work towards being more gracious, more liberative, more inclusive. Secondly, where do you need the justice of God to show up in your life? And in what ways can you bring justice to the lives of others. And finally, how does the promise of new creation bring hope to you? And in what ways can you partner with God to bring the newness of life into the lives of others around you? So as you listen to this song, I'd just like to encourage you to think of some stories of your own. Ask God to speak into your own lives about those things.
Tschüss.